My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode three of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. Last time, we talked about the surprise attack from Parthia that caught the Roman Empire flat-footed during Marcus Aurelius' transition to power, and discussed just how serious a threat the Parthians could be. Today we're going to take a break from the war itself to discuss what was going on back in Rome, where Marcus had taken hold of the reins of power. Marcus was unique in that his government and personal decision-making was filtered through the lens of his personal philosophy. That filter largely set him apart from the emperors that had come before, particularly Hadrian, the very man who had acted to get Marcus the top spot in the empire. This episode will make more sense if you've listened to the rest of the series, particularly episode one, but feel free to take it in however you like. Episode three, Never Let Yourself Be Hadrian. Marcus had let his juggernaut loose. Tens of thousands of legionnaires, their hobnailed sandals falling on the smooth stone roads that stretched across the empire, marched steadily toward Parthia. By the cohort or even the entire legion, they detached themselves from their forts and camps in the north, from the limes that held back the barbarians of Europe and the Arab tribes beyond Egypt, and started on their long trek. It was not just the citizen legionnaires who marched east, but the auxiliaries too, men who served in the hope of gaining citizenship and land inside the empire. There would have been Germanic cavalry, Rhodian slingers, Cretan archers, and other specialists. Marcus called on the entire Mediterranean world to throw back the Parthians. But it's notable that the emperor did not himself go east to lead this force personally, instead staying at the reins of power in Rome while he delegated the war's battlefield commands to others. It's unlikely that Hadrian, the man who set Marcus's rise to the throne into motion, could have been able to resist personally micromanaging such an important conflict, even if he had capable subordinates. Staying in Rome may have been a kind of rebuttal to Hadrian's policies and a statement about how Marcus thought it best to rule. We have reason to suspect that the emperor had become critical of the man who led Rome ably for 21 years. To start off, it's worth noting that the space in Marcus's mind that we'd suspect should be filled with gratitude for the man who brought him to power was suspiciously empty. In Marcus's notebook, Meditations, he gives a long list of all the people who he's grateful for and notes why he's grateful for them. There are old teachers on the list, his wife, his friends, various relatives, and of course, his adopted father, the Emperor Antoninus Pius. It seems odd that when it comes to Hadrian, Marcus has not a bit of praise or thanks to offer. More interestingly, even though he wrote no outright criticism of Hadrian in Meditations, some of Marcus's gratitude for Antoninus Pius noted that his adopted father did things that ended the practices that we know Hadrian embraced. For instance, even as a middle-aged man, Hadrian often entered into sexual relationships with boys younger than 18. A level of bisexuality was fairly common among Roman and Greek men, and they often took younger male lovers, but 
the huge age disparities and blatant spectacle of Hadrian's homosexual relationships seemed to disgust at least some of his subjects. Marcus thanked Antoninus for never disgracing himself with these sort of romances. Early in his life as heir to the throne, Marcus may have learned an important lesson from Hadrian. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, at least if you don't stand strong against the temptation with a firmly grounded philosophical practice. After Hadrian brought Marcus into the succession plans along with Antoninus, the emperor ordered Marcus to move in with him, alternating between the imperial palace and Hadrian's massive villa outside of Rome. The time he spent with Hadrian seemed to make a deep impression, and the older man would forever serve as a reminder of what he could become if he lost his grip on what was right. Hadrian was a brilliant polymath with a photographic memory who did much to improve the empire. There's a reason why he's listed as one of the five good emperors. He ruled well and ably. He's sometime classed with Marcus as one of just a handful of men with an intellectual bent who had a chance to rule Rome. For the most part, he was a personable and benevolent emperor. But the histories tell us that underneath his generous and affable exterior lurked something far more callous. At times, Hadrian could be cruel and was prone to megalomania, something Marcus seemed to be deeply worried about preventing in himself. Upon his ascension to the throne, Hadrian ordered a number of senators who had previously been opposed to him executed, despite promising not to harm any senators. And later, to secure the succession of Marcus and Antoninus at the end of his life, Hadrian ordered nearly a dozen prominent Roman men who he felt could make a claim to the throne, including his 90-year-old brother-in-law, to kill themselves or otherwise arrange for their deaths. In his final months, the dying emperor went through wild swings of emotion, some days bestowing gifts and on others seeking revenge for real or imagined slights against him. It's likely that Hadrian had always had this side, but he hid it well under a veneer of geniality and also kept himself too busy with his unrelenting drive and travel program for his more vicious side to become visible to most of his subjects. Hadrian was big on intellectual discussion and liked to weigh in on every topic from astronomy to architecture, but it quickly became known that if it came down to a debate on even the most esoteric subject, it was best to let the emperor win, even if you knew he was wrong. According to the Roman historian Cassius Dio, on one occasion, Hadrian argued with the sophist Favorius about some philosophical point, and onlookers agreed that Favorius won the debate. But Favorius knew he was on dangerous ground, and told the emperor that he'd been totally convinced by his excellent arguments and just kind of ceded the point. Later, Favorius's friends called him a coward for backing down when he'd obviously won the argument. Favorius replied, quote, You advise me badly, friends, since you do not permit me to believe that he who commands 30 legions is the most learned of all. Just remember that. The most learned man is always the one who commands 30 legions, unquote. Now, contrast this with some of the praise Marcus gives his adopted father, Antoninus, in Meditations. Quote, this in particular, his willingness to yield the floor to experts in oratory, law, psychology, whatever, and support them energetically so that each of them could fulfill his potential, unquote.
Hadrian was invested in the idea of his own expertise and went out of the way to make sure any perceived expert yielded the floor to him. Hadrian famously tangled with Apollodorus of Damascus, a leading architect who'd served under Trajan. Apollodorus was unwilling to hold back his criticism for Hadrian's amateur architectural designs, and the old man seemed to have died under suspicious circumstances. Some say Hadrian may have had a hand in that. There's also a tale of Hadrian getting angry with a slave and stabbing him in the eye, only to feel horrible regret later when he'd come to his senses. One lesson Marcus failed to learn from Hadrian, perhaps on purpose, was how to be an intellectual while passing yourself off as one of the people. Hadrian was beloved by his soldiers and often donned a full set of armor and equipment and marched dozens of miles with them. Although he had his own baths, he frequently showed up at the public baths in Rome and swam with his subjects. His gift-giving to the common people and even to his upper-class friends was legendary. Once, seeing one of his ex-soldiers scraping up against the marble in a public bath, Hadrian asked the man what he was up to. The soldier, apparently of modest means, told Hadrian that he didn't have a slave to scrape off the olive oil he'd applied to his skin as an exfoliant, so he was improvising with the marble. Hadrian presented him with several slaves in the cost of their upkeep, without a second thought. This was the kind of offhanded generosity that the Romans loved. On another day, two old men who'd heard of Hadrian's generosity made sure to scrape themselves against the marble when the emperor next visited the bathhouse. Hadrian Riley ordered them to scrape each other down. This was also a humorous side common Romans liked to see in their emperor. Hadrian also seemed to enjoy the gladiatorial matches and chariot races that bored Marcus, or at least convincingly seemed to, and otherwise appears to have been able to pull off a far more man-of-the-people facade than Marcus could. But it may be that Marcus's refusal to pander to his people when it would have been of material benefit for him to do so was a well-considered response. He writes, quote, What is it in ourselves that we should prize? An audience clapping? No, no more than the clacking of their tongues. So we throw out other people's recognition. So what's left for us to prize? I think it's this, to do and not do what we were designed for. That's the goal of all the trades, all arts, and what each of them aims at. That the thing they create should do what it was designed to do. And if you can't stop prizing a lot of other things, then you'll never be free. Free, independent, imperturbable. Because you'll always be envious and jealous, afraid that people might come and take it all away from you. By the end of Hadrian's life, with the emperor's body failing and the end approaching, his usual affable veneer was stripped away. He began killing senators and other men who said anything against him, and the capital was gripped with fear. For all this, Marcus was present, and he took note. Years later, he wrote a warning to himself in his notebook. Quote, Take heed not to be transformed into a Caesar, not to be dipped in the purple dye, for it does happen. Keep yourself, therefore, simple, good, pure, grave, unaffected, the friend of justice, religious, kind, affectionate, strong for your proper work. Wrestle to be the man philosophy wished to make you. Reverence the gods, save men. Life is brief. There is but one harvest of earthly existence, a holy disposition in neighborly acts.
We also see a defining policy of Marx's early reign in more praise for Antoninus. His adoptive father had stayed in Rome, governing from the center, which Marcus thought best. Hadrian spent most of his reign wandering around the provinces, believing that his personal attention and oversight was necessary in even the most minute decisions. Hadrian personally oversaw the fortification of the borders and the construction of roads, aqueducts, canals, and lavish temples that he himself sometimes designed. He visited the legion outposts around the empire and made sure the men were being drilled appropriately and would often berate their officers for any perceived failures. It's clear that the sometimes neglected provinces usually appreciated his attention and financial largesse, but back in Rome, which was used to the presence of an emperor, people were not as happy with his absence. Antoninus not only never left Italy during his reign, but also cut way back on building projects, which left far more reserve in the treasury, a thing that Marcus appreciated. One long-standing imperial quality Marcus disliked, in which he worked with Antoninus to change while he was still heir, was the response to criticism of the emperor with death or banishment. This had been the standard response of emperors since Augustus took power. In the Enchiridion, a book covering the precepts of Stoic philosophy, the philosopher Epictetus tells a story meant to demonstrate Stoic resolve in the face of tyranny. It's a story Marcus would have been familiar with since he was known to quote from the Enchiridion. It tells the story of the final days of Priscus Calvidius, one of the members of the so-called Stoic opposition that resisted the more tyrannical actions of certain emperors. Priscus was known to want to return to the republican form of government that Augustus ended decades before. Quote, Priscus Helvidius saw this and acted conformably. When Vespasian sent and commanded him not to go into the Senate, he replied, It is in your power not to allow me to be a member of the Senate, but so long as I am, I must go in. Well, go in then, says the emperor, but say nothing. Do not ask my opinion, and I will be silent. But I must ask your opinion, and I must say what I think is right. But if you do, I shall put you to death. When did I tell you that I was a mortal? You will do your part, and I will do mine. It is your part to kill, it is mine to die, but not in fear. Yours to banish me, mine to depart without sorrow. Vespasian ended up killing Priscus because he would not remain silent. And the Roman world lost what Marcus would likely have viewed as a principled advocate dedicated to public service. Marcus and Antoninus ended the clampdown on free speech and allowed their people to openly criticize them, a freedom that, with a few brief exceptions, had been absent since the days of the Republic. Their subjects wasted no time in taking advantage of this new freedom, and several writers of comedy mocked the emperors, particularly Marcus's interest in philosophy. A few politicians made their displeasure with certain policies known. But by and large, the people seemed to respect both men, and the grumblings never became seditious. Marcus was surely a monarch, if an enlightened one, who actively involved the subordinated Senate in governance, and there is no indication that he ever considered returning power to the Senate and people. But in his notebook, he does write that he is familiar with and embraces the nobility of certain ideas that were incredibly progressive for his time. From his former teacher, 
Claudius Severus. Marcus writes, quote, And from him I received the ideas of a polity in which there is the same law for all, a polity administered with regard to equal rights and equal freedom of speech, and the idea of kingly government which respects most of all the freedom of the governed, unquote. By the time Trajan came to power in 98 AD, the early Christians were spreading around the empire, and they were causing problems with their refusal to offer sacrifices to the emperor and the pagan gods, which the Romans saw as undermining the safety of the entire empire. Trajan ordered any Christian who refused to offer sacrifices to be put to death. Marcus seems to have done all he could to stop this persecution. A surviving edict written by him to a council in Asia says, quote, And if anyone persists in bringing any such Christian person into trouble for being what he is, let him, against whom the charge is brought, be acquitted even if the charge be made out. But let him who brings the charge be called to account. Unquote. In other words, he suggests that provincial authorities may be punished by Rome for persecuting Christians solely on the basis of their religion. It's telling that Marcus allowed a Christian patrician, a man named Apollonius, to serve in the Senate. And later in his reign, Marcus seemed to have enrolled an entire legion filled mostly or totally by Christians, the Twelfth Legion or Thunderbolt Legion. Marcus would, within the restrictions of an imperial system, spend his entire life pursuing these ideas of tolerance and freedom that were so different from what preceding emperors allowed. Indeed, the Roman government under Marcus looked more like a constitutional monarchy, at least on a surface level, than the world would know again until the 17th century. What really set Marcus apart from Hadrian and most of the emperors that preceded him was that he was truly a kind of philosopher king. On a daily basis, he used his chosen philosophical system, Stoicism, to help him make the many decisions that he was faced with. A modern analogy is that he so firmly embraced the philosophy that he loaded it into his brain as a kind of permanent operating system, and so Stoicism was the lens in front of his eye that colored how he saw the world. But just what is Stoicism? Honestly, it's really hard to summarize in a soundbite format, but here's my best attempt. A Stoic believes he doesn't control most of what happens in the world around him, only how he responds to it, in that he must always respond with wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Now, reading that out loud makes Stoicism sound like some kind of system full of empty platitudes, or a kind of like a fortune cookie quote. How do you actually enact that in your life? I think the best way to make this relevant is to talk about how Marcus or another Stoic would use Stoicism to make decisions, since much of life is really a series of decisions. Imagine a flowchart you would consult whenever a question arises. The first stop on the flowchart simply asks you if this matter is under your control, at least partially. If the answer is no, then Stoicism will tell you to stop wasting your time on it and move on to something where your efforts can actually have an impact. So whether or not the sun will be extinguished tomorrow, plunging Earth into an icy hellscape that will end all life, is probably not worth your time since it's outside of your control. On the other hand, if you were Marcus and worried about some barbarians who might raid the Empire, you wouldn't fret over the possibility of the raid but you would act to ensure that the borders were secure and troops were on hand to deal with eventualities. The raid's occurrence is outside of your control, but the preparations for the raid is. 
So if the answer is yes, that this issue is within your control, even partially, then you move on to the next step of the flowchart, which is, does this have to do with virtue? The Romans and Greeks recognized four kinds of virtue, practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. We could spill a lot of ink talking about each, since the Stoics had a lot to say about these topics. In many cases, let's just say that asking these questions about the decisions you're faced with and being honest about your evaluations will greatly reduce the number of options you find acceptable. So basically, you're, you're kind of hamstringing yourself a little bit here, but it's for a purpose that the Stoics found worthwhile. Justice. Is it just to exile or kill an opponent who has criticized you when that person may end up raising a rebellion against you, say? Should you offer amnesty to those who rebel against you? Is it just to allow orphans to starve on the streets of Rome after their parents die of the plague? Erecting grand buildings and putting on gladiatorial matches wins the hearts of your subjects, but is it the most temperate use of the state's strapped resources when so many other needs abound? Just how much food and wine do you really need to be consuming at all those state banquets you're obligated to put on before you're officially being a moderate? Being to just to all when it's often easier to just offer bonuses to some can be hard when you're an emperor and you have a support base to palcate. I mean, when your triumphant troops demand a large bonus to celebrate your victory, you'd be putting your life and that of your family at risk by turning them down. But if denying them is the just thing to do because you'd have to raise taxes on your already financially strapped citizens to pay for the bonus, maybe it's worth risking the ire. Finally, if the matter does not have to do with virtue at all, then is classified as an indifferent, as in indifferent to virtue. In these limited cases, a person could decide between preferred and dispreferred indifference, however he felt inclined, so long as they did not eventually come to interfere with virtue. For instance, acquiring wealth through virtuous means was fine, as long as fear of losing the acquired wealth did not keep you from acting virtuously. If pursuing wealth was too stressful, living a life of relative poverty was also fine. Imagine for a moment just how challenging the practice of Stoicism would be in your modern life. We know a lot more than the ancient Stoics, and we know that so many of our actions really are questions of virtue. It's just that most people ignore the less noticeable moral consequences of their decisions. But what if you examined them, all of them, all the time? Are your food choices virtuous? There's a reason why so many Stoics opted for vegetarianism or otherwise uh, simple plant-based diets that could be easily met. Is that politician you really love enacting policies that will help your country at the expense of some impoverished one across the globe? Keep in mind that while the Stoics didn't quite invent the concept of cosmopolitanism, they more or less made it the potent idea that it is today. To quote the Greek philosopher Antiphon, as he described his views on the matter, quote, by nature we are all constituted alike in all things, both barbarian and Greeks. This can be seen by consideration of those things which are essential by nature to all men. In these things no barbarian is set apart from us, nor any Greek, for we all breathe the air through the mouth and nostrils, unquote. Is it virtuous to take a long, carbon-burning trip on a jet when the world is closing in on a climate disaster? Is living in a dense city you may not enjoy more virtuous than commuting 50 miles from a suburb by car?
Now, people vary on if they think human action is the driving force behind climate change, and some don't consider the suffering of animals to be important, but that's exactly the point. The ancient Stoics were never unanimous on their conclusions about what constituted virtuous action. What makes a Stoic life so challenging is that you're constantly called to re-examine your decisions and lifestyle to make sure they're morally up to snuff. And that's a moving target as you learn more and become more discerning, which Stoicism demands you do. Through his reign, the emperor continuously questioned his assumptions and found ways to keep himself humble and his temper in check, while also letting go of the many frustrating setbacks that got in his way. We can see him doing this in his personal notebook, Meditations. It's essentially the notebook of someone engaged in what we would today call cognitive behavioral therapy, which science has found to be one of the most effective ways to deal with anxiety, depression, and other mental and emotional woes. He would write in it at the end of his days, reminding himself of his stoic values and questioning if he was on the right path. He seemed to regain his center by remembering his place in the cosmos. One element of Stoic thinking that likely benefited him most, given his entire reign was filled with setbacks outside of his control, was the value his philosophy placed on intentions and actions over accomplishments. Your attempts to do good might flounder, but so long as you'd acted virtuously and diligently in pursuit of your goal, you had nothing to be ashamed of. Though believing this in totality would certainly have been easier said than done. This rigorous application of philosophy to the art of ruling really set him apart from the emperors who had come before. Hadrian was educated and brilliant and understood logic, including the philosophical logic that Stoicism relied on. He knew how to win an argument. He was even familiar with and appreciated Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher Marcus was also fond of. But at the end of the day, he was more of a sophist than a philosopher, and that made all the difference. Sophists used knowledge to win arguments and give good speeches to convince people. Philosophers internalized values and then lived by them. Marcus didn't think much of this as a strategy for life or leadership, and really he questioned the effort so many emperors put into achieving lasting fame. Marcus writes that already in his own time, the name of Antoninus Pius, Hadrian, Trajan, and the other epic figures of Rome's past were rarely spoken by his countrymen because they'd faded from memory and, quote, all things fade away, become the stuff of legend, and are soon buried in oblivion. Mind you, this is true only for those who blazed once like stars in the firmament. But for the rest, as soon as a few clods of earth cover their corpses, they are out of sight, out of mind. In the end, what would you gain from everlasting remembrance? Absolutely nothing. So what is left worth living for? This alone, justice in thought, goodness in action, speech that cannot deceive, and a disposition glad of whatever comes, wel welcoming it as necessary, as familiar, as flowing from the same source and fountain as yourself, unquote. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll be returning to the Eastern Theater, where Roman reinforcements and new commanders are arriving in Syria and Cappadocia. We'll see what happens when these new Roman generals, who haven't had a major military conflict to contend with in decades, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Parthian Empire, an enemy which has humbled several talented Roman commanders over the last several hundred years. If you enjoyed this episode, can you do me two favors? First, please write a positive review for us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app.
even just a couple of five-star reviews can get the show seen by a whole lot more people, and ultimately, that's what's going to determine whether or not this show keeps going. Second, please consider financially supporting the podcast on Patreon. If you do, you'll get access to episode 9 of this 12-part series, a bonus episode that only supporters will get to listen to. You'll also get some more goodies on as the podcast gets off the ground. To do this, go to patreon.com forward slash the turning wheel. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you guys next time.